Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Whenever I find myself in a conversation where people are relating their stories of bad jobs, tough jobs, dirty jobs that they've had, I always get excited because I've got a good one that I can pull out. And it's the summer that I was a sewer inspector. Now, that wasn't my official job title, but that's what I did. Uh, my friend Brian and I went to Harbor Beach, Michigan, and starting at the end of the line and working our way all the way back to the sewage treatment plant, we opened every single sanitary sewer access hole, looked down in it, had to write notes about it, and lower this big, long thing to measure the invert of it. And yeah, that's all day long, including right after lunch. It was quite a job. And uh, you know, I, I bring that up and people go, okay, you won. But what I don't tell them is that it was actually a super awesome summer. Because what makes a bad job? You've got a boss breathing down your neck with all sorts of really awful requirements, uh, unrealistic stuff, and, and always throwing more on you. No boss around. We would get in a van every morning. We would drive that van from Bay City to Harbor Beach, an hour and a half, a nice drive, windows open. Me and my buddy, we got there. We had work to do, and we did it. And, and also, you know, what makes a bad job? You've got just continual labor with no progress, with nothing to show for it, with, well, we had one big job to do, and we got it done. As long as it was done by the end of the summer, everyone was happy. And we got done early and got to go back and work in the file room and stuff. It was actually super awesome. And I forgot to tell you this, there were smoke bombs involved because we also opened every storm sewer manhole cover, lit a smoke bomb, dropped it in, and then looked around to see who had their you know, vents or their, their drainage hooked up to the storm sewer. And we wrote that stuff down as well. And so we would, every time we lit one, we would pop a tape into the tape deck and it would place smoke on the water. And we, we talked about getting a Dalmatian to ride in the van with us and naming him Smoke, but we never made it that far. But it was, it was actually quite a good job because of all these things I just mentioned. But, you know, there are times when a job that seems like it would be very good is actually not. That was the case uh, for Sisyphus. He was, by Greek and Roman mythology, the first king of Corinth. And you'd think, oh, he's a king. This guy doesn't have a boss to answer to. He can do whatever he wants. Not if you're in Greek and Roman mythology. He had to answer to the gods. And he upset them. His boss was like Zeus. That's not someone you want to upset. And so the gods decided that the, the proper punishment was to, to sentence him to an eternity of menial, pointless, endless labor. And what he had to do, I'm sure you've even seen pictures of this, is he had to take a giant boulder and roll it to the top of a mountain. And when he got it to the top, it would roll right back down to the bottom. And he had to go down and he would have to roll it up again. And that was just ad infinitum. What a terrible job that would be. And that is even kind of the way that people will try and break someone's will today. We were talking about parenting last time and, and avoiding parenting that would provoke anger and wrath in your children. This kind of thing, dig a hole, then fill it back in. 
That's that kind of parenting. Probably not something we want to do, but we do see that sort of thing in, say, a prison setting. Uh, remember that movie with Robert Redford when, when he uh, was in a prison and he had to move this pile of rocks from here over to there? And he was old, but he had like the old man muscles and he was like, and he, was, and he moved the whole thing and everyone was cheering for him and he got it all done. And one of the guards said, yeah, great, but we sentenced you to six hours. So start moving them back. That's awful Sisyphus work. And that often is how our work can feel. And Paul knew this when he was writing to people about how they lived their lives in a spirit-filled way. Now, before we even get into kind of nuts and bolts of things, we have to deal with the text, starting with the very first word. If you're reading in the King James, the first word of this text is, servants, obey your masters. If you're in the New International Version, the NIV, it says, slaves, Obey your masters. And to me, these are two incredibly different things. One of them brings to mind horrific images of some of the worst uh, abuses and travesties in human history. And one of them, if I'm honest, brings to mind like Downton Abbey, like footmen and valets and butlers and stuff. Very different. So what are we dealing with here? What was the original context? How do we, how do we bridge this from that world to ours? Well, I think what we need to recognize is that the Greek word here, doulos, it does not answer easily or even well to any of our conceptions of servanthood or slavery from the past few hundred years. There, there is not a one-for-one one in any way. I think a, a very telling use of this, when there are those who demand that it always be slave in order to have a bold translation and, and not back off from the biblical truth, is to look at the Annunciation when the angel Gabriel comes and says to Mary, you are going to conceive and, and bear a son, and you will name him his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And she said, I am the Lord's servant. Yeah, let it be done to me as you have said, making her a, a great model for us of obedience. Uh, and what she said there was, I am the Lord's doulos. I've never seen a single translation where she says, I am the Lord's slave. The King James says, I am the Lord's handmaiden, which sounds again like Downton Abbey, but, but never slave, because there's, there's a broadness and a specificity to this term at the same time. It's a, it's a tricky term, and we have to deal with it in order to deal with this text itself. I suggest that the ESV is the best translation, where it says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Bond servants, first of all, because that is a word that's sort of foreign to us in our way of speaking and immediately says this isn't a category that we totally are familiar with. It's not something that we have in our own history or in Western history at all over the past few centuries. This is something different. A bond servant in the Roman world was a very, fairly common situation. Uh, we've talked about this before when studying Philemon and when we were in Colossians, looking at Colossians 3. Uh, if you want to get deeper into it, I think I went uh, a lot longer on, on some of the background uh, in that Philemon sermon. It's somewhere on our website. But you could become a bond servant and be bound to serve in a number of ways in the Roman world. The most common would be to sell yourself into it. Because remember, if you owe a lot of money to someone in that world, there's no bankruptcy there's nothing like that. There's no recourse for you. There's either pay up when it's due, which is probably right now, or you're going to the debtor's prison. And then what? You're just there in debt until someone takes pity on you and pays on your behalf, which rarely happened. And so before it got to that point, people would make an agreement with the person they owed money to and say, listen, how about I become your bond servant in your household for X number of years? 
or we put a certain amount of money on different tasks and different things, and I work off this debt. It was fairly common to see that sort of situation in the Roman world. You also could be sentenced to being a bondservant for a particular crime, where you'd probably be in the house of a noble or even serving in a palace or, or some kind of uh, municipal setting. You could be uh, a prisoner of war. And rather than just throwing you into a cell, they would say you are going to serve as a bond servant here. And yes, you could be born into uh, being a bond servant if your parents owed a great debt and, and you were born under that setting. But the point is that in Roman society, uh, this was a class. Okay, they were, they were called slaves, but, but because it was a class, you could actually rise up out of it. There was upward mobility. It was difficult, but it wasn't rare. In fact, this is, this is very common. 60 million people in the Roman world, that's between a third and a half of the population, uh, had been or were slaves at some point. And you could rise up. Uh, the reason that in, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, if you are a slave and are able to gain your freedom, do it so you can serve Christ wherever it is that you're led, was because most of those who were bond servants could earn their freedom. That's a, a way in which it was unlike the sort of slavery that mars our history of our nation. They would become freedmen, which was another class. And there were even generals and people who had been in this bondservant situation before. I'm not going to go on and on, although I think it's, it's a fascinating topic to look at um, because I want to get to where this is going to actually connect with our lives. And I don't think it's that big of a leap here. What was going on, of course, in Rome was that those who were Roman citizens... And that was a, a real elite. That was very difficult. You're either born into it or you buy your way in, which is a huge task. They saw work, like labor, as being beneath their dignity. This is one of the main things that leads to the downfall of the Roman Empire, by the way. Uh, but they saw that as beneath their dignity. And so there were so very many people who were bondservants. And so if God is going to address how you live as a Christian in this Roman world, he's got to address this situation. And it's worth reminding you, I think, that just because something is addressed in the scriptures or God limits it or regulates it does not mean that God endorses it. That's an important truth. Now, if an example would be divorce, in which Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said, Moses even said, that if you want to divorce your wife, give her a certificate of divorce, send her away. And then he says, but Moses only told you this because of the hardness of your hearts. And then we read elsewhere in the Old Testament even that God hates divorce, although it is permitted under certain situations, but that ideally, God's ideal is the, a man and a woman to cleave together, the two become one, and the two remain one till death do us part. Or another marriage example, polygamy. In the Old Testament, you see people, uh, men married to multiple women, and there are certain passages about how uh, life unfolds in that scenario. But obviously, this is not God's ideal. And by the time we get to the New Testament, it is phased out. If you're following Jesus and you want to be an elder, a deacon, a pastor, a husband of only one wife if you're married. Yeah, we're not, we're not dealing with guys who have numerous wives. It's phased out. And in the same way, as the gospel goes out, even this kind of Roman slavery and things, as the gospel goes forth, they're kind of the, the slavery of the day of the land fades away. Now, it took way, way too long in the West for this to happen entirely, but it began rather early. St. Ambrose, writing in 360 AD, says that a reading of Paul's letters makes it clear that the, the apostle believed God created all people to be freeborn people. 
and that the very existence of slavery of any kind was proof of iniquity, that we are broken and sinful and need a Savior. If you want, to, if you want proof that you, we need Jesus, just look around and go, wow, there's a lot of people who are in bond slavery that are not free. Now, why is it that, that uh, the Scriptures, and I, I have the same uh, questions as I read these things, why doesn't Paul just say, all right, turn the whole system upside down and, and revolt and end it? It's because despite what we often want and what Jesus' original 12 disciples clearly wanted, a military uprising, the gospel is not about changing the world by rising up and burning down and overturning raging against the machine. The gospel is about a far deeper changing of the world by changing hearts, by the leavening of the gospel going out. And by the way, that becomes a more permanent changing of the world. Otherwise, you overthrow, someone else overthrows later, and it's very temporary and transient. So we're changing hearts, and of course, the first heart we need to be concerned with is our own heart and how we view these things. And I don't think it's difficult to apply these even today to our hearts. We don't have, by God's grace, thankfully, a class of people in our country or, or uh, in much of the Western world that are bond servants who wake up and go, I have to do this. I have no choices, no options until I've uh, paid off this uh, bond that I owe. But there are plenty of people who are kind of bound in a situation who say, I'd rather not be doing this, but I got to feed my kids I've got to pay off my student loans. I've got to do whatever. I'm kind of stuck here, and I've got to work. Now, how do I approach this as a Christian? What needs to be my attitude? My, how, do, how is this a spiritual thing for me? There are a lot of people, I think, who in their work, they feel like Sisyphus, where they push that rock to the top, and then as soon as they go to sleep, it comes rolling down. And I'm talking about whatever your vac- vocation might be. You know, you're trying to keep a, a building clean, or you're trying to make a project happen, or you're trying to teach students something, and it's like all your work gets undone every time you do it, and it seems just like work for work's sake. That's not new. That existed already. And so Paul speaks to these people whose lives might just seem like it's work for work's sake, just pushing that rock up the mountain, and he says, listen, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Are you seeing the pattern here, by the way, with when we looked at this discussion of marriage and then of parents and children and now of people who are working in a situation of bond servitude where it's always as unto Christ, not unto man. That is the, the way that we live out our vocations. That is the way that we serve God in the midst of everyday life. We can almost just stop there, but I got so many more notes, you guys. With fear and trembling, th- this is the kind of uh, situation in which we remember the fifth commandment and how it is far-reaching. It doesn't just talk about, it, it says honor your father and mother, but when it's sussed out as the law is expanded, and when you read, say, Luther's Catechism or the Baptist Catechism or the Westminster Catechism, there's all this stuff about all those who are in authority over us and how we are not to hold them in contempt, but rather to serve them humbly and honor them as we would honor God, and how there is so much more to work in this world as believers than just putting in the time, maybe milking the clock, punching the card, cashing the check, paying your taxes. That's this week, right? May 15, I think this year, is when taxes are due. That's a time when I am tempted sometimes to have some contempt for those authorities, And I have to remind myself, there's no authority but what God has placed. 
I remember a few years ago when we were first going through the catechism on Wednesday nights, I had one of those things where God uses the text on the preacher's heart before anybody else's. Because I had, uh, in addition to paying my taxes, I had to pay this thing called a driver responsibility fee. doesn't exist anymore. Got pulled over. I don't know. I guess I might have been speeding. And I didn't. I had an expired insurance, proof of insurance. I had insurance, but it was expired. And so there was a law that in addition to paying my ticket, for two years in a row I had to pay this fee. It was a hundred and some dollars. And it really annoyed me, especially since they, they got rid of it right after I got the ticket. But I still had to pay for two years my fee. And uh, I was teaching on the subject. We were opening the words, and I, I remembered that sitting at home was the check I had written. And in the memo, <laughs> I had written, Highway Robbery. I know it's Mother's Day, but that's a great dad joke. But it was also a way of me kind of thumbing my nose. And I thought, when I get home, i got to tear that thing up and write a new check uh, that isn't holding in contempt those authorities over me because we have this tendency right in our work mock the boss mercilessly behind her back and just you know we're always we're always just uh tearing down rather than saying god told me to honor those who are in authority over me and of course it goes both ways as well look at verse 9 masters do the same for them stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him so if you are in authority over others, whether you're the head of a state or a family or a corporation or a small business or what, remember that when God deals with you, it is not just by justice, bald justice that he does. None of us would be sitting here if that's how God dealt with us. No, grace enters the picture and mercy and patience and long-suffering and all of these things. Justin Martyr, writing very, very early in church history, said the way to understand these texts, this one and the parallel in Colossians, is to see the reciprocity present in all of these relationships. Loving each other, putting each other first, having this agape, sacrificial, humble love for one another. And when we look at the parallel in Colossians, by the way, uh, we find in Colossians 3, uh, rules for Christian households. He talks about wives, he talks about husbands, he talks about children and parents. And then he gets to uh, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, as he gets into this same uh, subject. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Whatever you do, this is the mindset of the believer at work. Whatever you do, and I know a lot of people don't go to work at the moment, but I mean the believer at work, you're, you're working, you're working in whatever vocation you have. And as we do these things, whether, whether you are a office worker, whether you are a highway construction worker, whether you're a student, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, as we do this work and say to ourselves, whatever we do, I'm going to do it for God, it frees us from the sense of being the bond servant in this scenario. There was a guy named Theodoret of Syria. He was an Eastern father in the church, and he was writing to Christians who had been uh, grabbed and conscripted into working in the mines because they were being persecuted for their faith. And he said to them, if you do the work the way that St. Paul commands, that whatever you do, you do it as unto God, not unto men, they cannot make you a slave. Maybe in your body, but not in your mind and not in your heart. Because when children obey their parents, they're obeying God. 
When we submit to one another with this kind of sacrificial, self-giving love, we're submitting to God. When we work hard and honor those in authority over us, we're honoring God. And yet, for some reason, I believe we want to take our work life and make it the exception to this. Maybe because we're getting paid. So it's like, hey, I give them this, they give me this. It's a transaction. Leave God out of it. I don't know. But think about how much of your life is spent in work over the course of an entire lifetime. Whatever it is that you're, you're doing, putting yourself to, you're working an awful lot. You take out sleeping, probably you're working, maybe even if you leave sleeping in, you're doing more work than you are any other single thing. And the scriptures address this. Ecclesiastes 2, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. That whole passage that Aaron earlier read, I thought was so fitting to this, this text. Uh, the hand of God is, is giving you work. That's a, that's a gift for us. And our hands are not to be idle. Idle hands are the devil's playthings. That's not found in Scripture word for word, but the idea sort of is. In 2 Thessalonians 3, we read, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. So work is not a necessary evil. It's not an evil at all. It's not rooted in the fall. You know, our story of, of the scriptures, the meta narrative of, of God's story is creation, fall, redemption, right? Creation, everything's good, fall, that's our contribution, everything falls apart, redemption, things are restored. Well, if we're going to put work in one of those categories, it's not in the fall, it's in creation. It's not like the sin and death and suffering and pain. Now, there are things that go along with work because the, the fall fractures shalom and it sp spreads out and touches everything. So the stress, the frustration, the sore back the next day, yeah, that's rooted in the fall. But work itself is a gift that we were created in the image of God. He created and then he created us and said, take it away, guys, run with it. We call it the cultural mandate or the creation mandate. Dave, this is where I left off. Now you can create because I made you in my image and you can care for this stuff and you can create order and you can do all these things. And it, it's rooted in creation. Just look at Adam before the fall. He knew his vocations and because of that, he kind of had a sense of his own identity. It was rooted in these vocations that God gave him. They're callings. That's what vocation means, a calling. God called him to do certain things. So he's caring for creation. He's loving his wife and caring for her and she for him. He is tilling the soil. He's out naming the animals. These things that he's doing are, in a sense, who he is. In fact, his name, Adam, comes from the word Adama, which means like ground, earth, dirt. He's made from the dirt. Now he's, he's tilling the soil. And this is native to humans everywhere. You ask someone, tell me about yourself. Usually they start with vocations. And then you always got the guy who's like, no, 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 don't tell me that you're an architect. Tell me who you are. Shut up, dude. We will say, you know, let me start with my vocations, you know, kind of a collection of things. You'll see kind of where I'm coming from. Then I'll get to some other stuff. If you ask me who I am, you know, we, we answer in this way. I, I'm a dentist or I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm a husband, been married 20 plus years. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a father of two or whatever. Uh, I'm not, not a father of two. Father of one. I know it's Mother's Day. No announcement here. I'm not a secret dentist either. No, but, but this is the way that we, we introduce ourselves and kind of identify ourselves. And the church gets really against this. You, know, you don't find your identity in your work. Yeah, okay. Find your identity in Christ. 
But the way that we carry out our vocations is a way that we image God ourselves. So it is part of who we are. The Bible does this. Nimrod was a great hunter upon the earth. Amos, the prophet, was a sheep herder from Tekoa. Paul talks about Demetrius, the silversmith. What, is, are we differentiating Nimrod the hunter from all the other Nimrods in the Bible? There aren't any. No, this is just like, he, oh, he's a great hunter on the earth. Okay, I kind of have a little sense of who we're dealing with here. These things are vocations, they're callings, not because this is what I call myself, but because God has called us to these things. And so they should be celebrated and carried out to the glory of God. This is something that was recovered in the Reformation. The most important thing, obviously, was salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Yes. But along with that comes a lot of other stuff that starts to kind of ripple out. And one of those is what we call the doctrine of vocation. Luther was very uh, kind of prevalent in his writing about this. That, that what had happened is, is the church had kind of like drifted back to this Pharisees and Sadducees are up here and, and everyone else is down here. If you're a you know, a farmer or a, a blacksmith or something, you're, you're, you're nothing. That, that had become the case again in the Middle Ages. Like you're, you're a churchman or you're a laity, and that's no big deal. You, God kind of barely notices you. And if you look back, this comes out of this thing called the white martyrdom. Really early in church history, if you were going to follow Jesus, you're taking your life in your hands. You might be killed at any time. You might be a martyr. We call that the red martyrdom because your blood would be spilled. And you would show, you'd have a chance to show, that I am... I belong to Christ. All my faith is in Christ. Well, in, in 313 or 312, Emperor Constantine becomes a Christian, or he, he says, I'm converted to Christianity. Uh, maybe some would debate whether he had or not, but in 313, he says, no more persecuting Christians for being Christians. Not long after, Christianity is the state religion. It's no longer uh, taking your life in your hands to be a Christian, and you're not going to be martyred for it. So how now do we show God that I'm really all in? If only there'd have been a lot of Bibles all over the place and people could have read like they could during the Reformation and gone, oh, by doing everything that I do, whether I eat or I drink or I'm working my vocations or I'm being a husband or a father or a wife or a mother to the glory of God. Got it. And I, I try and serve the church and I, and, I, and I bring the gospel. Instead, what happened is called the, the white martyrdom. It's called white because your clothes don't get stained with your blood. They remain clean, but you still kind of give up your life. Monasteries arise. You have the idea of, you know, I reject any uh, human worldly pleasure or comforts. I take a vow of celibacy, of silence, of obedience, of poverty. And, and you know, early on, some of the more extreme people in this movement, they're the desert fathers, they're going off, living at the top of a pole, the bottom of a cliff, living in caves, completely cut off from anyone, which is very much the opposite of what Jesus said, while going, make disciples of all nations. But that becomes the gold standard. The Reformation turned that on its head. Luther and Calvin and others writing, saying, look, when we're told to pray, give us this day our daily bread, God doesn't answer that prayer by raining manna from heaven on us like he did in the wilderness. No, he answers that prayer through the work of farmers and millers and shepherds and merchants and the like. And we could add you know, factory workers and truck drivers and, and shipping and receiving clerks and, and cashiers and chefs and waiters. When we pray that God will keep us safe and healthy, say, God, protect us. God doesn't answer us by surrounding us with a wall of fire like he did at the Red Sea uh, on the way out into the wilderness. No, he answers these prayers through the, the vocations, the working out of governmental authorities, 
of lawmakers and police officers and soldiers and engineers and, and construction workers and, and building inspectors and healthcare workers and all sorts of other people carrying out their vocations. And when I say vocation, calling paid professions is only one aspect and one part of the world of vocation. There's a lot more to it, and all of us have more than one vocation. Being a parent is a vocation, being a spouse, being a citizen, being a grandparent, being, being a, a saint is the vocation we're all called to that colors all of them. But what we rediscovered in the Reformation is that it was wrong to say the only or even the best way to serve God is to cloister yourself off in a convent or a monastery and, and cut yourself off completely and just be all alone with God and, and, and reject life on this earth. But rather, if you are going to do work on this earth, do it to the glory of God. Do it well. Do it fairly. Don't cheat anyone. Be honest. Work hard. Care for those that you are charged with caring for. It, the, the only way to please God is not to take a vow of celibacy, although Paul said, I have done that. I, I'm unmarried. And I wish that many who are going to go into ministry would be. But we see throughout Scripture that we honor God by being faithful husbands and wives and parents. We honor God by being faithful employees and employers and good citizens. So that when we look at the doctrine of vocation that we inherit from the Reformation, we see that the mother at home right now caring for a sick child is doing God's work as much as someone like Jenny Pazinski who's overseas doing missions. There aren't tiers of value to God based on these sorts of things that, that we've set up. Now, sadly, in very recent years, I think we are losing some of that progress. And there is a kind of new monasticism that has come into the church. It's not as obvious. It's not as big of a buzzkill, and it's a little sneakier. But we are now going backward, I believe. Uh, the most uh, popular, the best-selling Christian book of the past 25 years, apart from the Bible, after talking about all the things that vie for our attention and not sinful things or vain things, but stuff that's just part of being human, driving your kids to uh, Little League, going to work, mowing your lawn, the author says this, you will not be in heaven two seconds before you cry out, why did I place so much importance on things that were so temporary? What was I thinking? Why did I waste so much time, energy, and concern on what wasn't going to last? My friends, you're not going to regret carrying out your vocations. Now, if you get them all out of, of whack, maybe. If any of them become an idol and take God's place, absolutely. If your work keeps you away from caring for your family, you might regret that. If your family life is such that it keeps you from engaging with the church, you'll regret that. But if you carry them out to the glory of God, you will not regret. I will not regret carrying out my vocations. And I don't just mean that of pastor, but of husband, father, neighbor, member of my community, citizen, we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, You have been taught by God to love one another, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And yet in many corners of the church today, there is guilt and shame attached to the idea of having a life where you work hard and care for your family and live a quiet life and mind your own business and work with your hands. 
There's this notion that if my primary concern here is, is with my home and family and, and work and my community and my little church, and I'm not being audacious in my faith and moving mountains in this very visible, look at me kind of a way, that there's something lacking. In fact, there's, there's a, a book not long ago, uh, maybe it is a long time ago, uh, it's 12 or 13 years, is that a long time? Uh, about how all prayers have to have the same kind of overreach as the prayer to, to keep the sun from going down. Remember when the sun stood still when the, Joshua was leading the battle? Because that happened once, now that's the, the bar that we have to leap over every time we pray, every day we get up. Even Joshua only did that one time in his life. But there's this notion, and, and I think one way that, that it's been kind of slipped in is through a phrase I still hear once in a while, though I don't think it's overly fashionable anymore. Every member a minister. Now, on one hand, I see what's going on here is we're trying to eliminate this notion that there's the, the clergy who do all the ministry, and then there's the people who then just don't. They just kind of pay the, the clergy to do it. And we do want to get away from that. But the way I've seen it executed is, is in, in saying that your vocations are only valuable to God insofar as you can sort of turn them into resembling my vocation. Not every member a minister as in every member a servant, but every member a minister as in like a, a kind of formal professional ministry. And, and that is demeaning to the kind of vocations that God has called people to all over the world and throughout churches. Now, are those who are called to take vows or be ordained and set apart to minister? Absolutely, yes. But we see in Scripture... I mean, just start reading all these names at the ends of all these books. And you see, okay, there are a few that are apostles. There are, there are some who are pastors and elders in each church. But most people are primarily denying themselves and taking up their cross and following Jesus and being a witness for him in the home, in the workplace, in the civil sphere. Luther not only said that the cobbler making shoes honors God as much as the minister preaching a sermon, he also said this, and I think it's all sorts of relevant today. God does not need your good works. Your neighbor does. And we might add your employer does. Your employees do. Your family does. I think of William Wilberforce as... Uh, slavery continued to exist embarrassingly late in the Western world. He was in England and saying, we need to do something about this because he was a believer in Jesus Christ. And, of course, his pastor was uh, the author of Amazing Grace, John Newton, who had been a slave trader and been saved and had a passion for, we have to end this thing. And Wilberforce was a godly man. He said, I think I probably should go into ministry, right? And John Newton said, no. First of all, you'd be terrible at it. Secondly, God put you where he put you and gave you the gifts he gave you so that you could, in your vocation, bring an end to the evil of slavery in England. And that's just what he did. Understanding the doctrine of vocation. And yet, I think in many ways, we've kind of gone back to the medieval understanding of it, where there is this kind of super class of Christians who turn everything into a, a formal ministry, however they, they have to do it, and they look down their nose at the ordinary people doing ordinary work, living quiet lives, minding their business, and being witnesses to the gospel. And maybe we're even worse off than the medieval world, because at least those monks, they understood the value of making a really good wine, that it glorifies God. They understood the value of copying and preserving texts, not just religious texts, but 
historical and poetry. The reason the Dark Ages didn't erase all of Western history and all of Western culture is because there were monks in scriptoriums copying everything down and preserving it. They understood the value of a good poem. They understood the value of making a, a garden not just so that they'd have something to eat, but making it beautiful to the glory of God. That you could paint a painting and have it be beautiful and do it to the glory of God, and it would still be to the glory of God if you didn't silk screen a verse on top of it. In fact, that might kind of detract from it. And so when I heard a guy not long ago saying in a video online, never tell anyone my job is that I drive a tow truck or that I am a dental hygienist or something. I don't know why I'm so into teeth this morning. No, tell them my ministry is that I drive a tow truck. And again, on one hand, I see, yes, you're serving God, you're serving people, that's a great approach, unless what you're telling them is, unless you turn this into some kind of church work, it's not worthwhile. Unless you're, you're saddling people with, with guilt and extra law that we don't find in the scriptures. Well, the one thing that seems to have survived in Nazareth about Jesus' reputation, when those in the early few uh, centuries of the church go to check on you know, Jesus' hometown and, and, and write things down, was that he made the best ox goads. That, that he made quality stuff. He worked hard. And it doesn't say anywhere that he, he wrote little verses or inspirational phrases on them or something. He carried out that vocation when that was his vocation. I want to free you this morning to say it's okay for me to have a vocation and for it not to be a capital M ministry where I twist it into, well, I'm driving a taxi, but really mostly what I'm doing is uh, evangelizing or counseling or something. Now, if God brings that to your heart or God brings that to your mind or, or the Spirit prompts you, yes, of course, go crazy. But it's okay for you to do your work, care for your family, do that kind of stuff, and then come to church and serve as a deacon or a Sunday school teacher. And then say, oh, missions overseas is important. I'm going to support that with money. We dog on that all the time. You just think you can write a check? Somebody not long ago said to me from a, a verse from Romans, you see, if you're going to be involved in missions, you've got to do it with your own hands. I said, dude, Romans is a missionary letter. It says, please get together some money so I can go to Spain and bring the gospel. Maybe a few of you will come with me, but certainly not everybody. Most of you will be too busy doing your work, caring for your church and, and, and your job and your community and your neighborhoods. That, that's not something to be ashamed of. And I think what every member of minister and everything a ministry is trying to do is to avoid this, this situation where we've got a dichotomy, where you've got Sunday you, which is Christian you, and then you've got everything else, the secular you or something, and never the two shall meet, and they're separate. And th the problem is they're trying to fix it by reaching over that wall and pulling everything back into the church category and turning everything into a church program, when the way to fix that problem is to knock down that wall between some sacred and secular, to get rid of the whole category of secular. If you follow Jesus, it's all sacred. If you're caring for creation, if you're carrying out your vocation, if you're doing the, the work of the Great Commission and proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, it's all sacred. That's what we know now from the Reformation. God's will is carried out in all these things. It's not just one little compartment. Sadly, in trying to fix that problem, we often add to that problem. And finally, let me just say, when I talk about God's will and God's calling in things, 
I'm not talking about the way many people think of these terms as a train track. You know, the notion that you've got to find God's will and it's elusive and it's in God's, you know, set up like an escape room scenario where you have to figure all these things out or, or it's dark and foggy. You've got to find the right train station at the right time, get on the right train so you'll be on the right track, right? If you get on the wrong train, the longer you're on it, the further away you are from where you were supposed to go. And people worry about that with God's will. What if years ago I did the wrong thing and now I'm just way off course? What if I, you know, especially as they think of their vocations and their jobs and, and families and things, what if I was supposed to marry that other guy, uh, pick a different major, take a different job? What if I should have taken that left at Albuquerque years and years ago? Now what? What do I do? This is not how God's will works. God is sovereign. He's placed in you gifts and desires, and in his providence, he has placed you in circumstances, times and places, where he then reveals his will in your life. He's, he's, this is a 4D game, okay? He's not limited in the way that you and I are when we make a maze on a piece of paper. And I've heard people then get kind of turned around with this, and when they hear the doctrine of vocation, they say, that sounds great, but I'm going to have to take that and put it in my hip pocket for later. Because what I'm doing right now with my life is not my big calling. I didn't dream about this when I was a little girl or a little boy. I'll, I'll wait and I'll, I'll pull this out when I'm doing something I'm really passionate about. No, you're misunderstanding the doctrine of vocation. Whatever you do, remember that? Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Even if you're a bondservant, if you're a Christian who's forced to work in the mines, if you're a king like Solomon and you're writing Ecclesia, all of these things, you must do it to the glory of God. And God is glorified in it, and God is working on you through it. Think about Moses, right? What's Moses' great calling? Oh, well, he delivered all the people from Egypt, right? That's what everyone would say. That was only that last vocation that he had. First 40 years of his life, he lives in Egypt in Pharaoh's court, gets a world-class education. He's got power, and he's helping to run the biggest empire that the world had seen up to that point. Then, for 40 years, what's he doing? He's the opposite. He's out in the middle of nowhere as a shepherd, probably not talking to anybody but his sheep, his kids, his wife, his father-in-law. That's it, right? It's very small feeling compared to the other thing. Then the last 40 years of his life, he becomes a political, religious, military leader. And whenever you bring up the calling of Moses, everyone's going to go to that last one. But it wasn't the only one that glorifies God. Someone had to watch those sheep. And beyond that... God was working in it. You think when you're, you are the leader of millions of people who are grumbling, complaining, fighting, and there's, they're like, we know where we're going, but we're not getting there, and it's been years. You think there's anything that he learned back in Egypt from Pharaoh's tutors that came in handy about administration or leadership? Or I guarantee there was. You think there's anything that he learned about shepherding that came in handy as he is shepherding all these people through the wilderness? I guarantee there is. I experienced this myself. For years, I worked in IT for a company. It was a Christian company. I was happy to work for it. Uh, and as time went on, I was less and less happy. Part of it was my job was less and less about finding solutions and helping implement them and more and more just answering the phone. Could have been done by a monkey and a parrot, I used to say. The monkey would answer the phone. The parrot would go, ah, reboot. There you go. And, and I remember I got an email one day, and it said, uh, here are the new... Uh, kind of uh, the, the new grid for how much time you get off at different milestones. And it said, for you, the next milestone is having worked here 10 years. And I went, oh, I know my calling is to ministry, to be a pastor. I can't be here when I get to 10 years. And I wish I had had someone at my side right at that moment to say, 
listen, you're, you're losing sight of the doctrine of vocation. Do this right now to the glory of God. Not halfway while you do your seminary homework on the side. Do it to the glory of God. And God is using this. And I look back and say, yeah, I don't know anything about computers that's helped me now, but I sure learned a lot about patiently listening to people in that job. I learned a lot about, you know this stuff and they don't. You have to communicate it in a way that they'll understand in that job. And it was very, very beneficial. It could have been more so had I been open to it. None of this is beneath Moses. Certainly this stuff wasn't beneath me. Remember, even if all the, all the job does is makes it so that you are dependent on no one, as we read there in 2 Thessalonians, even that is worthwhile. It's not beneath us. So how does this look in our, our own lives as we carry out our own vocations and as we work day by day? First of all, glorifying God, bringing glory to God by any other word is worship, right? That's what it is. And we worship God then, not just on Sunday, but every day in our lives, and I would say we worship, if we are following Jesus, at work. Sometimes this can be done very literally. Deuteronomy 6 we looked at last time. You'll teach your children diligently uh, to follow these laws, talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. If you have a job in which you can meditate on Scripture or listen to worship music or listen to the Bible on your iPhone or something, that, that there are plenty of vocations in which this stuff can happen at the same time. But even if you've got a job where you have to focus and you're like, I can't, I can't be, you know, let my mind wander, begin your work with prayer. A lot of people say, I begin my day with prayer. Begin your work with prayer. You sit down at your desk, you slide in behind the wheel before you shift to drive, you get up in the morning before you interact with your kids. Lord, as I carry out my vocation today, help me do it to your glory. Give me patience, give me diligence, give me wisdom. Aaron and I have been reading together uh, for a while. Brother Lawrence is practicing the presence of God. He was one of those monks. And there's, you know, there's some theological hiccups and goofs in there that, that we talk about. But overall, his, his whole message is, I'm the cook in this monastery, and I do this stuff to God's glory and experience his presence in the course of my work. At the beginning of everything he did, all right, making the biscuits now, Lord, help me make the biscuits, bless my work. As he's doing it, he's seeing biblical connections and things. When he gets done, Lord, thank you that the biscuits didn't burn, moving on to the next thing, cleaning up the kitchen, etc., etc. We want to be serving God as we are being good and useful to our employer, to our families, to our communities. And not only do we worship at work, we worship by our work. C.S. Lewis in The Joyful Christian wrote these words, The idea of good work is not quite extinct among us, though it is not, I fear, especially characteristic of religious people. When our Lord provided a poor wedding party with an extra glass of wine all around, he was doing good works, but also good work. It was a wine really worth drinking. The apostle says everyone must not only work, but work to produce that which is good. So obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man." This gets down to attitude and remembering who we're serving. Makes me think of when I was on the wrestling team in high school. Uh, at the end of every practice, we would have conditioning. It was either down-ups or push-ups. Down-ups where everyone gets in a circle and you go like this. And then he says, down-up, and you fall down, you get up really fast. I'd do one, but the mic would make a bunch of noise. Also, I could go down. I don't know about the up 
but then we do push-ups sometimes. And I remember noticing, because it was at the end, and we were in the gym, but the wrestling mats were in the, the cafeteria, the coach would go around and say like, okay, one, two, three. Then he would walk out of the, the gym, and he'd be picking stuff up, gathering stuff up, but we'd still hear him shouting, you know, like, 20, 21. And we all noticed very quickly that the push-ups when he was in the room looked way different than the push-ups when he was out of the room, still yelling the numbers, and he couldn't see us. And one day, he gathered us all around a TV, which wasn't unusual. Usually it was film of, you know, wrestling moves and stuff. And he said, we're going to watch something today. Nope, it was our push-ups. And you could see just a vast difference when he was watching like a hawk and when he was in, that was a bad afternoon, my friends. Now, I don't mean to come here and say God is always watching, waiting to, to leap on you, but to remember who you're working for means that you will do good work, whether you're being watched like a hawk or whether you're taking a van out to uh, Harbor Beach and opening up sewers and no one's there to see. You will do it well. The quality of your work reflects on your creator. And this is how we move from this stuff being rooted in creation to it being rooted in redemption. Because if there's uh, someone who's got a little fish thing or a Bible verse on her business card or on the side of his truck and they do shoddy work or they cheat you or overcharge you or upsell you in a sleazy way, that person is doing violence to the gospel, as is the person who spends all their time on the clock reading the Bible or witnessing. Yeah, you're being a witness, all right. You're witnessing that you're talking about changed life, but in reality, you think it's okay to steal from your employer. What we do, whether we're paid for it or not, we do to the glory of God when we do it to the benefit of those around us. And this is even maybe especially true where you think you're, you're least appreciated and your work might seem to matter the least from your point of view. You know, or, or, or when you're in that moment where your boss springs something on you at the last second and you know if you do a good job, he's taking the credit. If you don't do a great job, you're taking the blame. And you go, all right, I guess I have to still do this and I have to do a good job. Are you going to be angry? Well, you'll be angry if you're thinking of working as unto men. You can transform everything if you're working as unto God. We were just looking at uh, my son and I Mother's Day cards a few days ago, and all of them have the same theme. I'm a terrible kid, and I don't appreciate you at all, but hey, once a year, I'm going to say, hey, good job, yeah, I like you, thanks, love you, mom. And I thought, man, if you, if you were a mother and you were only doing this stuff for that once a year little thank you, you'd get bitter really fast. Now, mothers do that out of love for their children, but if they want to truly even be more fulfilled, they do it as unto God, serving God by serving their children and families. As same thing that fathers do, as they serve God by serving their wives and children. And then when you do that, work of all kinds, vocations of all kinds, become spiritual exercises because that's what they are. This can change our entire view of work and life. Make sure to spend great time in prayer for those who are in authority over you and those who you are in authority over. Make sure that you spend time praying for your employer and your employees, your children and your parents if they are still with us. We, we, I used to do a better job of this in the pastoral prayer, always praying for some authority over us, our president, our governor, or something. I, I, you know, I kind of just lose these things here and there. i got to refocus on doing that because that's something we're commanded to do. We ought to also ask our employees or anyone we're in authority over, am I being fair? Is this, am, am I doing a, a fair job here? Is there some way that you can edify me here? We see this in verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, 
This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. It's even more strongly worded in the parallel in Colossians, in Colossians 3, 24 and 25. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. That one is in both texts. No partiality. You will get your just desserts. That's a strange phrase, by the way, just desserts. People often think that that's D-E-S-S-E-R-T, dessert. Like if you do a good job, you're going to get ice cream. It's not that, though. It's, it's a weird word. It's spelled like desert, like the arid place, pronounced like dessert, and it means that which merits reward or punishment, exactly what we're talking about here. But if it was a dessert, it wouldn't be ice cream. It would be pie. That's a segue. That's a professional segue. Because in his commentary on this text, Everett Harrison writes this, the faithful slave of Christ receives a son's portion, the inheritance. Reward is not, as critics use the term, pie in the sky, by and by. Rather, it's the ice cream reserved for the little girl who, rushing into her mother's arms, cries, See, Mommy, I cleaned up my playroom like you told me to. The real reward is the mother's approval. The ice cream is mere trimming, but quite proper trimming. That's true with us as well. Our, our salvation, it comes to us because of what Christ did. But we're also told there will be a reward and it will be a, a wonderful, proper trimming. Little just desserts for those who were faithful in their service. And you know, this is a text that has been misused to exploit people over the centuries. And what's so ironic to me is that those doing it didn't see that this very text tells them they will be punished for exploiting people especially using God's word to do it. At the end of the day, this is what I want us to remember. That when we think of a text like this, or we think about our work, our vocations, the last thing on our mind should be Sisyphus pushing that boulder up and then letting it slide down, work for work's sake, something pointless, something meaningless. Rather, we need to think about being bondservants of Christ Jesus. And I said you can rise up out of that when you've paid off the debt. We will never pay off the debt to Jesus Christ. We will be in his service forever. And if we truly are saved and we truly love him, there is nowhere else we would want to be. Therefore, let us carry out our vocations, not as unto man, but as unto God.